Um, okay, so I think we're going to start the story of Sarai kind of properly at the beginning. We should probably look at where, where we first see her, which is in chapter 11 of Rishith. So, um, chapter 11 begins on page 19, and um, if you look, for example, at verse 10, right, uh, chapter 11, verse 10, kind of towards the bottom of page 19, you see that the chapter kind of begins a very lengthy uh, series of genealogies, right? We're told in the beginning that um, this is the line of shame in, in verse 10. Um, when shame is 100 years old, he has a son named Atashad. Um Shame continues to live another 500 years after the birth of Arpachshad, and has more children. Um, and, uh, and then in verse 12, we're told about the lifespan of Arpachshad. So Shem's son, Arpachshad, lives for 530 years. He has his son, Shalach. Um, he then lives on for many years afterwards and has more children. We're told that um, Shalach lives for 30 years. He has his first child. And basically, the genealogy kind of continues, um, each time mentioning uh, the, the father and his eldest child, his eldest son, actually, um, and then moving on to that son and that son's eldest child. Um, and pretty much it continues that way until we get to, um, to verse 26. Verse 26 is when things get a little bit more interesting. We're told in verse 26 that Terah lives for 70 years, um, and he has a son named Abraham, but we're also told about two other sons, right? Two other sons have names here, Nakhla and Haran, so that already is kind of the text indication that there's something interesting about Terah, right? Because we're not just told about his eldest son, we're told about his other two sons. Um, in verse 28, one of those sons, Haran, dies while his father, Terah, is still alive. Um, in verse 29, the two remaining sons get married, Abraham and Nahor both get married. Uh, Abraham's wife's name is Sarai, uh, Nahor's wife's name is Milka. Um, and then in verse 30, suddenly we're told, but he Sarai Akara in Lavalad. Sarai is barren, she doesn't have any children. Um, and I would think that this, this verse, first of all, is, is a very powerful introduction to Sarai, right? The first thing that we know about her, other than the fact that she's married to Abraham, is that she doesn't have any children. But it's particularly powerful given that it's situated within this very long list of genealogy, right? The whole point of this chapter is whose child is who, right? You know, this person lives this long and has a child and so forth. And then to suddenly kind of run up against this woman who has no children at all is very, very striking. Um, uh, then at the end of chapter 11, uh, Tarak takes his his son Avram, his, uh, his grandson Lot, um, his daughter-in-law Sarai, they all step forward to go to Canaan, but they don't get as far as Canaan, they only get as far as Haran, um, and uh, they stay there. And then if you remember, the beginning of chapter 12 begins with this very famous um, moment where God appears to Avram, and, and God urges Avram to, to go to Canaan. Um, one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the very beginning of chapter 12, is that um, the first promise that God makes Abraham, God says, Abraham, you know, chapter 12, verse 1, go forth from, from your land and your birthplace or your family, depending on how you translate Moladicha, your father's home to the land that I'll show you. And we're told that I'll make you into this great nation. And again, there's something sort of ironic about it, right? Abraham is the first person that we're, we've been told about in the whole Bible whose wife doesn't have any children, and he's also the person who um, gets this promise to be made into a great nation. Um, and one of the, the questions, I would say, the central questions in the married life of Abraham and Sarai, at least the first half of it, is, is this prob- promise of 
being made into a great nation, is the promise meant for both of them or just for Abraham? Right, it's placed in the singular, right there, it's called I'll make you into a great nation. Um, it's not clear that just because God is talking to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation, presumably you and your wife Sarah, in which case the promise is for both of them, or is the promise directed to Abraham? Sarai is a woman who can't, doesn't have any children, so perhaps Abraham will be made into a great nation with, with another woman. Right, and that question is kind of the, the open question of, of, of the beginning of their marriage. Um, if we skip a few chapters to chapter 15, um, right, if you remember uh, in, the, in the intermediate chapters, um, Abraham and Sarai go down to Egypt. Um, Abraham asks her to say that she's his sister, so that way he'll be safer. She gets taken by Pharaoh, eventually she gets released. Abraham gets a lot of uh, uh, wealth as a result of this whole story. Um, and then in, um, in uh, chapter 14, there's the war of the four kings against the five kings. Abraham kind of uh, jumps in to uh, rescue his nephew Lot, who's been living in Sodom, uh, and he managed to sort of triumph out over the, you know, the most powerful things at the time. Um, and that, that gets us to chapter 15. In chapter 15, um, God appears to Abraham, and God says to Abraham in, chapter, in verse 1, this is on page 25, uh, God says, Don't worry, Abraham, I will uh, protect you or be a shield to you. Your reward is great. And uh, now for the first time, Abraham starts to, uh, to talk back a little bit, right? Lovely, great to be told by God, don't worry, I will protect you, you'll have a lot of rewards. But Abraham says back to God in verse 2, um, God, what can you possibly give me? Right? What is this great reward that you can give me, uh, given that I have no children, right? I am, I am barren. Who's right? The, the one who is in charge of my household is not my child, but rather my servant Eliezer of Damascus. Right? I, I don't, it doesn't matter what you can give me. If I don't have a child, what, what kind of reward will that be? Um, interestingly, God doesn't respond to Avram, right? And we see in verse 3, Avram begins to speak again. Uh, and this time, Avram is a little bit more specific. Uh, we're told, God, you have not given me any children. Look, my, my steward, my servant is going to inherit me because I don't have any children. And then um, God responds and says, no, no, your servant won't inherit you. Um, rather, you, know, you will have a child from your own body that will inherit you. Um, one thing that we'll, we'll see afterwards is that Midrash will make a big deal of this. Um, you'll notice that Abraham's language here is very singular, right? He says, Mahitim, God, what do you give me? I am childless. Um, and in the next verse as well, I came li lona patazara. You haven't given me any children. We're going to see this great midrash where Sarai uh, basically will fault Abraham for saying, right? She says, why did you say came li lona patazara? Right? You should have said you didn't give us children, right? And so, but it seems that at least over here, Abraham is sort of speaking for himself, right? He says, God, you know, what kind of reward can you possibly promise me, given that I don't have any children? And God responds and says, you will have children. Um, okay, all of that gets us to uh, the chapter that I really wanted us to focus on today, which is chapter 16. Um, let me... Thank you. 
Um, so we begin over here in chapter 16. We're told uh, in verse 1 on page 27 of the GPS Tanakh. The Sarai Ishit Avram lo yaldalo. Sarai, the wife of Avram, did not, uh, had not borne him any children, right? This kind of this reminds us back of that original verse in chapter 11 about Sarai being a woman who's an Akara. And here we're reminded once again that she hasn't had any children. And then almost as a non sequitur, we're told, the Hadar. She hasn't had any children, but she does have this Egyptian maidservant named Hadar. Now, it's interesting that we're told that her maidservant is Egyptian, right? Because so far, the only thing we know about Sarai in Egypt is that Egypt is the place that uh, she went to with Abraham, she was taken by Pharaoh, and then kind of returned. Um, the, um, there's, a, there's an exact in Beishi Rabbah that says that basically um, Hagar was, a, uh, was Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh was so kind of impressed with Abraham that he sort of handed his daughter over to be a maidservant, right? Which is kind of an interesting midrash agree on who Hagar would be. Um, but, but at the very least, it seems as if if she came, if she's Egyptian, she probably joined up with their household while they were in Egypt. Um, in which case, she knows what happened to Sarai in Egypt, right? To the extent that this was a, a difficult moment for Sarai and a difficult moment in their marriage, so she's aware of the fact that Abraham kind of more or less sacrificed his life there, right? You can said, you know, I, I, in order to protect me, say that you're my sister, that you'll be taken. And if Hagar joined up with the family at that point, she would she would be aware of this is kind of a best up the story. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, right, we know two facts over here at the beginning of chapter 16. One is that Sarai has her children, and two, that she has this Egyptian nature. Um, then we're told in verse 2, Batomar Sarai Abraham, he na asarani adunani ladet, um, behold, God has prevented me from having children. Bona el come to my maid. Ulai Perhaps I will be built up to her. Maishma Avram And Avram listens to Sarai. Um, now, a couple of things I think are interesting about this. Right? One is that it doesn't seem like it's Avram's idea at all. Right? Um, we know that he's desperate to have a child, right? Because when God promises him a great reward, he says, wait, what kind of reward can you possibly give me? I don't have any children. So we know he really wants a child. But we also see that he's not kind of willing to do anything on his own. Like he, he, he's not looking for another wife. It doesn't seem like it's his plan at all. It seems as if it's totally Sarai's plan. So that's a great question. I think it's a great question, both in terms of the original promise that God makes Abraham and, and also uh, the conversation of the continuing chapter. The Midrash imagines that she's very aware of it and that she's kind of angry about it, but the verses don't let us know. Right? We, we don't know what she knows or what she doesn't. We assume that she's aware that they're on some sort of quest together in Canaan, but exactly what the conflicts of that are, it's not, not clear how much she knows about it. And I think it's a good point, because how, you know, what she thinks about it is going to, you know, what, what, what she thinks her role is is going to be different depending on, um, depending on, you know, what she knows about the conversation that Abba and Abba has. Yeah, but what is this frustration mean that she does bear a child? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know whether she wants to necessarily might be angry and not on because ancient times when we were like, to bear children and they didn't come then and talk to her and that a lot. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so it's, it's actually, so that, that's a great point. We'll see one second. So it's another two on the page is that Nakhon Sarnas talks
contemporary society at that time in terms of what expectations were. Yeah, hold on. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's a good point. No, excellent point. All right. So Avram, Avram certainly doesn't say no, no, sorry, I am not interested in that. She's happy with doing it. But I think it's also worth noting that she, she's the prime mover at this point in the story, right? She's sort of, she's decided a couple of things in this verse, right? One of the things she's decided is that God has prevented her from having children, right? She frames it as, right? God has stopped me from having a child. She um, well, actually, what I think what he exactly said was, right? you haven't given me children. Right, right, that's true. I mean, it is true, but it's true that both of them have not had children. But I think it sounds to me like there's a difference in language between you haven't given me children and God has prevented me from, from giving birth. Um, I guess it's not a big difference, right? I guess maybe each one of them. Yeah, no, that's true. That is a good point. That is a great point. Um, it is interesting to me, though, also that it doesn't seem that Sarai's goal is for Avram to have a child, right? She's not saying, God has prevented me from having a child, and so therefore you should go and have a child with somebody else, so you at least will have children, right? She uses this very important phrase of, Ulai mona, right? Perhaps I will be built up through her, right? It seems as if Sarai's goal is, is to somehow be a part of this this promise that God has made to Abraham, right? She wants to kind of be a part of this covenantal story, and she seems to be saying, look, if I can't sort of physically bear the child, maybe by giving you Hagar, I, I will be built up through her. Um, which probably... Right. Well, it's true, but I guess if, 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 if he has a child with her, right, with Hagar, then the child will be Abraham, then she's saying, but I will also be able to be... Oh, but I see that, right? Maybe she's saying, like, even like, right. Uh, right, okay, so she's maybe just sort of thinking about herself in a particular way here also. Right, that's, that's a great point. Um, if you look at Edda Bagunel over here in course number one on the page, right, she tries to parse exactly what, um, exactly what Sarai means by, by, uh, by her request to Abraham. He goes, with Sonalomar, right, what Sarai meant to say is, now that we have lived for so many years in the land of Sinan at God's word, and still God's promise to you of the that God will make you into a great nation hasn't come to you, right? According to this, to Abarbanel, Abarbanel assumes that she knows that promise, right? That that promise that that uh, Abraham was given by God was something that, that Sarai knew about. And she says, look, God promised you to be made into a great nation. We've been living in Tanakh for a long time. Um, and I haven't had any children. In Safek, there's no doubt, he bishali has It must be my fault. Now, why she assumes that kind of thing? She's not about the other day, but she says, it seems that Sarai, Sarai believes that, that the, the lack of children is from her. Uh, that God has prevented me from having children. The God apparently does not want the child to come from me. Right? And therefore, come to my maid. Maybe I will be built up to her. What she's saying is, the child that Hagar will give birth to on my knees, I will raise this child, I'll sort of adopt this child, and the child will be 
my my heir, the Ulaimi may have given the man who just got me my eyes. Perhaps if I raise this child, it'll, the child it will be as if the child actually came from from my body. The Jainian Ulaimi banya gamalokin nana. And that's what um, that's what Sarai means when she says Ulai Bananimana that uh, it's not that not that Sarai thinks that she herself will have a child, but she'll sort of uh, adopt you know, she'll sort of be the adopted parent, the adopted mother of Hagar's child and, and in that way she's going to be a part of uh, a part of this covenantal destiny. Which is really interesting, right? About all assuming that Sarai is saying not just it's not just that it happens to be that I haven't had a child, but God must not want me to have a child, right? If I haven't had a child, it must be that God doesn't want me to have this child, but I'm not willing to just sit out of the covenant of destiny. I'm going to find some other way in, right? If I can't have the child myself, then I will adopt the child. Uh, you know, I'll think, you shall, you Abraham should have a child with God. I will adopt that child, and in that way, I will kind of be fully a part of a part of this story. So. But even a little more, she said, saying about Hagar. Hagar is simply a vehicle for you know the birth of her child. Yeah, it's a good point. She's really not thinking about Hagar at all, right? She's saying Hagar is going to give birth, right? And it's almost that like, this image of giving birth on, on Sarai's knees is very interesting. It's almost like Sarai is going to start up again. As soon as the baby yeah. comes into the world. She's going to sort of the baby off the diary. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, 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 and Sarai, you know, Sarai's point is good, but it doesn't seem to start thinking that much about Avram over here, but she's certainly not thinking at all about Hadar. Hadar is just kind of the, the vehicle by which she will, right? If I can't physically unsound myself, I'll, I'll bring a into the world in some other manner, and then I will take it. Um, Tell me a little bit more. What do you mean? Say it again, Tola. Yeah. Yeah. So Tola's saying that a similar thing happens. Similar sort of sequence of events happens at the end of the book of Ruth, where Ruth gives birth to a baby and Naomi sort of, we're told Naomi takes the baby into her bosom. Everybody says, you loved in the Naomi, it's as if Naomi has had a child. Um, yeah, it feels different because at least there's a whole relationship between Ruth and Naomi that precedes it. Whereas over here, it seems as if Sarai is really thinking of Hagar. Oh, that Ruth drops out. Yeah, no, it's true, it's true, it's true. It's a, it's a good point, it's a good point. Um, yeah, although again, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Because they do say there, you love Naomi. That's what the neighbors say. No, the neighbors have announced Naomi's had a child. And so the pointing out also at the end of the story, we kind of falls out of the story a bit, right? It seems that everybody decided that Naomi now has this continuation of her family, and they kind of don't talk about it at all. Um, so I would say that is disturbing in terms of Ruth, but. I would have to agree with you that here, Hagar is, is, is kind of in, in much worse shape, right? Because at least with Ruth, there is a sense that Naomi says to her, you know, remember what Naomi says to her at the beginning of chapter 3 is, look, my daughter, I will, I will, I will think of a good plan so that things will be good for you. It seems as if at least she's kind of looking at Naomi's love. Right. So no, does not love Hagar. But, yeah, that is very true. Ruth has a voice. Right. God has no voice at all. So she'll go in the middle of the cycle, but not much. It's true. It's true. It's a good point, right? And I think, 
And I mean, one of the things that I think is a really interesting question to keep in mind in this chapter is, was it, was it sort of bound to fall apart, right? When, it's going to be read this very first verse over here, right? Is it clear that it's going to be terrible afterwards, right? We have Sarai kind of not really thinking about Hagar at all, just kind of interested in sort of warming her way or, you know, finding her way into this covenantal promise. Is it clear right from the start that, that this is, you know, going to explode afterwards? It could be, but it's important that, and we'll see this a little bit later, um, the same thing happens later on with, um, with Rachel and Leah. Like each one of them sort of believes that God is not giving them children or any more children in Leah's case, and they give their maids to Yaakov. And there, it doesn't seem to end badly. You know, it's true that Yohan and Yopad don't have much of a role or a voice, but, you know, this doesn't seem like a disaster, right? Or it's just this chapter really feels like it's a disaster in the making, kind of right from the first one is Hubert's peace that she's born for no children. Mm-hmm. You know that, right? And I wonder if it suggests that after God said, I'm going to make you a father of children, but they may think, oh, it's children have a child. Yeah. Something just happened, and then nothing happened. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? I mean, it's interesting. I think, right, it, it, back in chapter 11, it was interesting to us that the one couple that doesn't have any children is the couple that's promised. You know, guess what's promising, or of them guess what's promising in for a great nation. But you might have thought that with that promise would come this change in fortune, and then, you know, they kind of wait for a long time, and it's when it doesn't seem to happen, that's when Sarai says, well, okay, I need to do something, right? I can't, I can't just wait forever. Um, okay, actually, and let's, let's look at, at verse number two on the page, the, the Nacham Sarna commentary in the GPS uh, version of, of Genesis. Somebody want to read verse number two? Great, thank you. The custom of the infertile rights provided for husband was a concubine in order to bear children is well documented in the ancient Near East. The laws of the Ishtar, early 19th century BCE, deal with the case of a harlot who produces children for the husband of a barren wife, that these become his heirs. In the old Assyrian marriage contract, 19th century BCE, stipulates that if the wife does not provide him with offspring within two years of the two years, she must purchase a slave woman for the purpose. The provision of a concubine slave for bearing children is taken for granted in the law of Hammurabi in the specific case of a wife who is a priestess and is thus born from giving birth. In Sarai's case, it is unclear whether she has a full share of ever having children on her own or whether her action reflects the widespread popular belief that a woman who is unable to conceive may become fertile by adopting a child. Okay, great. Right, so I thought there were a couple of things that were very interesting over here, right? There's the sense, first of all, that this was pretty standard, right? That if a, if a wife couldn't have a child on her own, there was almost an expectation that she would provide uh, you know, a slave or a concubine who would be able to have children in her place. And so Sarai's actions over here in that case sort of fit very um, easily within contemporary practice of the time. That's a lot of interesting point at the end, right? That maybe when she says, perhaps I'll be built up to her, right? Could be, as Abarba now suggests, that she'll adopt this child. Or it could be that she's hoping that maybe by adopting this child then she, she herself will be able to to give birth to a child. And then it's interesting to think about what the, you know, what would the status of Hagar's child be then? Well, I guess that's that she becomes the whole question, right? 
Um, okay, at any rate, uh, Sarai makes this offer to Abraham. She says, you know, please come to my, my servant. Perhaps I'll be, uh, perhaps I'll be built up to her. Abraham listens to, uh, to her voice. We're told in verse 3, back in, uh, chapter 16, over here on page 27, that he talks Sarai, Ishit Abraham, et Hagar Hamitri Chifrata, Mikit Esther Shanim Meshevet Abraham Be'er So Sarai, or, right, the emphasis here on the roles is important, right? Sarai, the wife of Abraham, takes Hagar, some Egyptian maid servant, after ten years of living in Eretz Canaan, in the land of Canaan, she takes her and she gives her to Abram, her husband, uh, as a wife. Now, one of the other questions in this chapter is what actually is Hagar's status at this point, right? Is she actually a wife, right? Does she give her to her really as a wife, or is she sort of a, a maid who is kind of now acting as a concubine? It's not, it's not so clear. Over here, it seems that she's, she's actually a wife, but she gives her to Abraham as a wife. We'll see in the next couple of verses, it, it, it's no longer quite so clear. Um, yeah, but the yeah. Yeah, I think the reason why they're doing that is in, in a few verses, Abraham is going to say, look, she's just your servant. She's just, you know, she's just, you know, play, do whatever you want with her. And that was the thing she really was a wife. So I think KPS is trying to, the translation is trying to sort of smooth it out by saying, well, all along it must have been concubine. But I think the Hebrew kind of keeps alive this very interesting tension. Right over here, it sounds like she's a wife, and, and soon it'll sound as if her status is, is, is not bad. Um, the other thing that, that, uh, that I think is interesting over here is that, uh, well, two things. One is, is this length of time of 10 years. Right? They live in Canaan for 10, we're told that they've been in the land of Canaan for 10 years, um, and now uh, at this point she, she so I decide to take matters into her own hands. This winds up becoming um, a halakhic precedent. There are all these uh, stories in the Gemara about how, you know, once a couple has been married for 10 years and unable to have children, then somehow the status of the marriage changes. There's a possibility that maybe they should get divorced and try to have children with other people, but there, the sense of 10 years of being the waiting time gets established from this verse. But I also like it because it reminds me of, um, of, uh, of your point, right? That maybe they, there was this expectation that once they got to the land of Canaan, things would be different. So if they're not counting 10 years from the time that they got married, it's 10 years from the time that they got to Canaan. So there is a sense that perhaps, you know, the promise that God makes to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 was going to change their faith. You know, they didn't have children before, and now they have this expectation that they would. Yeah, it's a long time, right? 10 years later, now she says, okay, I, I, you know, I need to do something on my own. Um, the other thing worth noting is that uh, Sarai is totally the active part here, right? We're told, right, Vatikah, she takes Hagar, Vatikinotala, she gives her to Abraham. It seems that Abraham is sort of more than willing to be a part of this, but he's not kind of, he's not doing any actual engineering of this, this story, right? It seems as if it's totally at Sarai's own insistence, um, and she's the one kind of orchestrating it. Um, in verse 4, we're told, Vayazor al Hagar Vataha. Right, Abraham comes to, you know, he lies with Hagar and Hagar conceives. I always think this verse 4 is kind of heartbreaking, right? You feel like Sarai has been trying for such a long time to get pregnant, and Hagar, like, you don't need to get four words into the verse. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, it seems almost instantaneous for her. Um, it, it always seems very sad to me. You know, you have this kind of very, very long, drawn out, painful attempt to have children on Sarai's part, and it's kind of instantaneous conception on the part of Hagar. So we're told in verse 4, Vayavol Hagar Vataha, and he comes Hagar, she conceives, Vatira Kiharasa, when Hagar realizes that she has become pregnant, Vatikal Virta Be'ineha, her mistress becomes light in her eyes. Um, and if you look at, um, 
at class. Verse number three on the page, it seems that this was also not uncommon. Somebody want to read verse number three? It's also Nachman Sarna. So was ready? not surprising either that uh, Hagar has been given to Abraham, like the tribe given Hagar to Abraham in the, in the hopes of having a child, but it's also not surprising that Hagar uh, reacts to being pregnant in this way, right? That, you know, especially in a society where the, uh, you know, the inability to have children was a, was a mark of disgrace, right? It seems that Hagar, sort of, especially being able to conceive so quickly, kind of quickly thinks of herself as having uh, a relatively higher status now, and she begins to, uh, to disrespect their eyes. You know, it's interesting to look at this in a southern context mm-hmm. because it has always been lost. Mm-hmm. You know, that women turn against them. Yeah. You know, because once they have children and one parents, they are feeling the superiority and just beginning to shift them a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly comes out again later on with Rachel and Leah, right? Yeah, there's some kind of difference about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. these references. Do mm-hmm. they help David's story because she's got one? Uh, um, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think these references help to date the story. I think Sarna kind of has his own dating of the story and he's assuming that these are kind of, you know, contemporary or kind of within the mood, the cultural milieu in which the story takes place. It's just kind of very informative. That would be my sense of it. Um, okay, right, so now we get to verse 5, one of the most interesting verses. So right now is very upset, right? She's very upset because for me, for her, she's very upset, first of all, because she's probably a little bit jealous of Hagar, even though this is her plan, and because Hagar is disrespecting her. And what she does in verse 5 is, she says, But come on, Sarai, Abraham, Sarai, Prince Abraham, and she says, Come on, see, Allah, my wrong is upon you. I gave you my nature in into your bosom, but when she saw that she had conceived, then I was lighter in her eyes, right? She began to disrespect me. May God judge between you and me. Now, a couple of things I think are very interesting about this verse. First thing to notice is that um, the verse uses, she uses exactly the same language that the narrator used in verse 4, right? Vatira Siharatna, as soon as Hadar sees that she is conceived, right? In verse 4 we're told, Vatikavyatabinaha. Over here, Sarai says, Vatikavyatabinaha, right? I, I became lighter in her eyes. So the first thing that we, that we see is that Sarai is giving an accurate read of the situation, right? It's not that she's kind of imagining things, right? She sees exactly what's going on, and she's, she's right about it, right? She's accurate, this is in fact what's going on. The thing that's strange about it is you would assume that if Hagar is disrespecting her, what Sarai should do is turn to Hagar and say, Hagar, I'm really angry at you. Like, look what's going on here. What, why are you treating me this way? Um, but instead, she's not talking to Hagar at all. Instead, she turns to Abraham, who seemingly is not a part of this particular drama, and she says to him, my wrong is upon you. I'm really angry at you, because look what Hagar is doing to me. May God judge between you and me. Which seems a little bit misplaced. Right? It seems as if she's angry at Hadar, then why is she yelling at Abraham? And why, why is she calling um, 
why is he calling down upon us? Uh, uh, God's judgment upon us. Um, and uh, I guess so, right? Yeah, right. He could be saying, you know, you should fix this in some manner, right? That would make sense. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she feels that she has standing or has standing and God is going to decide to do this and now she has standing and then and now God has to decide to Oh, interesting. So she thinks that she's trying. Oh, interesting. Oh, no. Maybe she's trying to. Yeah. That could be. Yeah, right? I mean, the baby has not been born yet, right? Which is important to sort of remember for the story. But it seems as if somehow Sarai at this moment already realizes that the plan is not working out, right? As soon as Hadar begins to protect her, probably I think she realizes that she's been kind of totally discounting Hadar from the story, right? She just assumed that Hadar would kind of be this kind of almost like a disembodied wound that would kind of give forth this child, and then she gets her to take the child and go, and now Hadar is showing signs of her own agency by disrespecting Sarai, and it seems as if Sarai kind of is regretting the plan, but, but she's directing all of her anger at Adam. Yeah. Maybe that's why we have to, you know, that she gave her uh, her to Adam, that he shot. Mm-hmm. And she didn't expect, she expected, she expected him to impregnate her. Mm-hmm. She did not expect that she, she would treat her as a wife. So she gave him, she gave her as a wife, but she didn't, well, maybe that's why she gave, because maybe that's looking forward, that she gave, because she wanted, because, uh, you know, I will get a child through her. Mm-hmm. But then once she gave her, mm-hmm. it was really shot. And then that's why she's so angry with Adam. Mm-hmm. Because this was not the relationship that she expected to develop. Right. Although, I mean, it is, but, but she is the one who, right, it's her doing it, right? She's the one who gives her to him as, as, as a wife, right? She gave uh, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Right? But she he shot low. Let me shot. Right. And she became. Oh, so you're saying, you're saying she gave, she gave Developed a relationship with this woman, mm-hmm. and if she was a Gisha, and that's why she's so angry because otherwise, why would she be so angry? Right. So, so I think, you can certainly, you know, you can like kind of do a midrashic reading of it and, and break it down that way, but I think the plain meaning of the Kiteno Talavam Shalolisha is that she actually gives, gives her as a wife, right? I mean, we could cut it in the middle and say she gives her to him. You know, and then as a wife is kind of what happens afterwards. But but I would say that's already kind of like we're sort of imposing that reading, right? The sort of the, the flow of the words is that she could have given her. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's what we, and I think there might also just be a sense that she in the beginning is feeling so confident in her relationship with Abraham that she doesn't really worry about it. She, yeah, she gives Hagar as a wife, but she figures, like, it doesn't really matter, right? It's really, in her mind, the whole story is about her, right? You know, Hagar will have a child, and then I'll raise it, and then, you know, it'll be great for me, and great for Abraham, and she, you know, she, she's not even kind of, she's not worried enough about it to think about the status of it. Mm-hmm. That uh, a barren wife who was looked down on. Mm-hmm. And it can't be so much of a surprise to her mm-hmm. that this is Hazar's attitude. I think it would be more like her would be honest about that. She, mm-hmm. So she says, let God judge between us. That's so you're saying there's something. The main thing I think the opposite is the ending here where they even say, pointed out that Sarah is Is that it's not just that Hagar is disrespecting Sarah, but maybe Abraham is as well, and this is Sarah's way of saying it, right? She's saying, you know, the, right. that, right? Mean, because one of the readings that I've told often offers of the story that I like a lot is that um, he says that really what, Hagar, what Sarah is saying to Abraham is the way that Hagar treats me is a reflection of the way that you treat me. She would never dare to disrespect me if she didn't sort of sense that you also disrespect me. And so I'm angry at you because you were sort of, you created this dynamic in which. Hagar thinks it's reasonable to treat me in this way. And I think that that's especially interesting if we, if we remember that it seems that Hagar is joined up with a family back in Egypt, which is kind of really a moment of, of real disrespect for Sarai, right? When Avram says to Sarai, David, you're my sister, so that things will be good for me and I'll, you know, I'll get all this wealth, there, there is a sense that that is a moment of deep disrespect. And so, you know, to the extent that, that this story is, is, is built on that earlier story, I think there is a, a sense that maybe, yeah, maybe what, Hagar, what, what Sarai is saying is the way that Hagar treats me it has to do with the way that you treat me on them, and that, that's why I'm so angry at you. Um, yeah, sis. I think that that's when I was like, is there any new use of the word Hamas? We have Hamas before, which is a God's piece of the world, which is totally self-destructing, and he should call us out of that call. I was coming to him and he had some kind of sexual perversion. So I think that Hamas be a lot of interesting problems. It's going to go to your white people. I don't put each side right in the two, and she does equally that would be okay. But something more disruptive about the natural Going to be the wife, and now this is going to be a way to have a baby. And I, 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 it always, I, I don't know, 
know, you can tell me what you think about it. It always feels to me that Sarai is a little bit short-sighted in this story, right? She kind of, she has her plan of what she wants to do, but she, she hasn't, right, the things that unfold that don't seem surprising to us, it seems pretty obvious that, of course, it would be kind of difficult for marriage to insert a third party into it, right? But, um, but, but, it, it, it seems that Sarai was sort of so focused on kind of what she wanted out of this whole arrangement that it doesn't seem like she's kind of thought about how it could play out with the, the other parts of it. So, I mean, I guess it seems to me that, that equal treatment with Hagar is not, is not kind of what, is not satisfactory to her. Although, but, it, but that's an interesting suggestion, right? That it, it's, yeah, that, that it's about the, well, because maybe, maybe she extends it, you know, she thinks that there's a correct social order in which she is the primary wife and Hagar is kind of there to fulfill this particular function and to the extent that Abraham is not supporting that hierarchy of the eyes, that might be sort of a confusion. Or, I mean, or it could be that perhaps you were just doing a much more generous read than I am of her eyes. You would say even equal treatment would be good enough for her, but... Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, 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 it's an excellent point. Um, I think the other thing that's very interesting to think about is um, what do you think Sarai wants Abraham to say? Right? When she says to him, my wrong is upon you, I gave you my nature, and she says this very intimate language, now that she's gotten pregnant, she's disrespecting me, may God judge between us. What do you think Sarai is hoping Abraham to say? Okay, so maybe Abraham, she'll... She wants Abraham to say, actually, you're right, this is a terrible plan, I'm going to send her down. Yeah. Uh-huh. 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 Got it. So she wants, so Sarah Queen Theory wants Abraham to step in and, and sort of tell Hagar the how things should be, right? You must respect that I see still the primary one. Okay, great. What do you think? She's Egyptian princess, I guess. She in the verses, she's always described as Sarai's mate, right? Which would sort of not have her out in them. I think the Midrash kind of imagines, right? I think it's interesting. Why, why, why would that Midrash want to imagine her being a princess? I think either because she was in Pharaoh's house, she was in Pharaoh's house, but, but why specifically a princess? I think either because she's trying to give Ishmael really good lineage, right, the daughter of princess, or also to sort of make this point that, you know, uh, I think what, what Carlos says in that draft is, it's better to be a maid in, in, uh, in Abraham's household than like a princess in Pharaoh's, is there's a way of doing it. But, but it, is, it is a strange thing, yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay, yeah, for you. So, uh, different aspects of the story, mm-hmm. princess or not. So, Bad things happen, right? So I get taken, things, and so forth. But it also is kind of 
this sort of productive place. It's where you go to in a famine. It's the place of, you know, saving. And it's the, it's the place of all of Yeah. Oh, that is definitely true. Um, okay. Anyway, so Sarai seems like she wants to involve Abraham, right? She says, my maid servant is disrespecting me. It's all your fault, Abraham. It's God does between us. We assume that she wants Abraham either to step in and make things right between her and Hagar, or maybe even to get rid of Hagar. Um, but what Abraham actually says here in verse 6, right, we're told, Look, she's your, she's your slave. She's your female slave. She's your maid. She's in your hands. Do whatever you want to her. Um, right? It's an interesting response, right? You know, and... and on the one hand, to the extent that Sarai might want to be reassured about her position within the family, you know, maybe this is helpful. I can tell, look, she's not really my wife, she's really just your maid. Um, on the other hand, it, it feels kind of, it feels unsatisfying. It seems that what Sarai wants is Abraham's involvement in this story. And what Abraham is saying is like, look, this is my problem, right? This is your idea, Sarai. You know, you deal with it if you want to, right? I don't, I'm not going to have any of the wife says, wait till your father gets and we're told that to Sarai, so Sarai now abuses Hagar, but she brought me Hagar runs away. This is a really, very horrible thing, but it's, it's, it's horrible pretty much for, for everyone, right? It's horrible because what is Avram, like this woman, right, whatever we think of Hagar, she's the mother of, of Avram's child, right, what do you mean to say, oh, she's just your maid, do whatever you want to her, right, that's a terrible thing, right, it's terrible that Sarai abuses Hagar also, right, it's, it's the whole, the whole verse, I think, is very, it's very hard. Um, I just want to look at, uh, before we go on, two, two really sources over here about these two verses. Um, one is the Midrash that I was referring to earlier, about, um, the Midrash on verse 5, right, when Sarai says, Come and see Alecha, my wrong is upon you. Right? What, what did you mean by that? Verse number four, I'm sure. Yeah, verse number four, which is a um, midrash on that, on verse number five. Right, so here we're told, But when I say, Alecha, 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 my wrong is upon you. Rabbi Yudan, the shame Rabbi Huda Barthimon. Rabbi Yudan says in the name of Rabbi Huda Barthimon. What does Sarai mean? She says, Homsene Atabidvarim. You wrong me with words. Lama, right? How how is the wrong that you're doing me a, a verbal wrong? You hear you hear me being insulted and you are silent, right? So according to the Midrash over here, when Sarah says Kamasia, Sarah says Kamasia what she means is you hear what's going on, Avon, and you're you're not interfering, right? You should, right? If you hear my name disrespecting me, it's your job to take my side, and you're not doing it, and that's why. That is how you're wrong. Right? That's one perspective on the wrong. The second perspective over here is Rabbi Berechia b'shem Rabbi Abba b'shahana Amar. Rabbi Berechia has a different perspective on what Sarai is complaining about. And he says, what Sarai is saying is, I ask judgment against you. Now, why is Sarai asking judgment against Abraham? He says, in order to understand what's going on over here, the dynamic between Amram and Sarai, uh, he tells us a parable about two people who are imprisoned in jail. The king passes by the jail. Amarlechad, one of the prisoners, calls out and says, Execute justice for me. Let me out of jail. And so the king, hearing the prisoner say, the king says, okay, let, let the prisoner out. Let that guy out. 
Amar is Hafei, so now the other co-prisoner, right, his friend is in jail, says, Yidhiti ni right, I call judgment upon you, right, I have a grievance against you. Ilo Amarta, if you have said, Taboa di Kayon right, execute judgment on our behalf, let us both out of jail. Kimanda Akah came upon me. In the same way that you were let free, I would have been let free, right? For the same cause, that if you had just said let us out instead of let me out, then in the same way that you were free, I could also be free. The Chaduja Amarik, but once he said, Kavadia Kon Didi, right? Uh, execute judgment, judgment for me, let me out. Let a piece be low out. Right? You were free, you were let out, and I was not let out. Right? So in, in the parable, the two, right, one prisoner is let go, and the other prisoner says, look, you just left me behind here, right? You could have just as easily gotten me out of jail, and yet, because you were only thinking about yourself, you were free, and I, I'm still stuck here in jail. Right? That's the parable, and so Rabbi Rechid was on to say, ha, right, so too, so I said to Abraham, you am I the Anu Hokim Arim, if only you had said, and we are childless, right, when you were speaking to God, if only you had said, the Anu Hokim Arim, we are childless, Kimandi gave love, King Hebrew. Right, in the same way that God gave you a child, God could have also given me a child. The Chaduja Amarik, but since you, Abraham, said, Anochi Holech Ari, right? Remember, Abraham said, Hashem Lokim, Mashi Kemi, right? What can you give me? Anochi Holech Ari, I am childless. Lach Yehei, the Lee, the Lee, the right? You were given a child, and I was not. So, uh, Rabbi Gorky over here in the Sindrash is saying it really has nothing to do with Hagar, right? The reason why Sarai feels wrong, Hagar is just kind of a, you know, approximate cause of it, but it's not really underlying the reason why she feels wrong. The reason why she feels wrong is that she's saying to Abraham, you think the story is all about you, right? You think it's just about you and your ability to have a child. So much so that when you had God's ear, right, when you were speaking to God and you were asking for a child, you didn't say, we, right, my wife Sarai and I don't have a child. You only spoke about yourself. And since you only spoke about yourself, we're now in this position where you have a child and I don't. Um, and you're wrong, right? Because you could have just as easily said, we don't have a child. And then, in the same way that you now are going to have a child, I, I could have one as well. Now, the irony of this in Josh is that it really is her life plan, right? It was her plan for Abraham to have a child with her God. It's not like this. This just kind of happened on its own, and then Abraham on his own decided to, you know, to take Hagar. Um, it was the right plan, but even though it was the right plan, what she's saying, I think, is I had to resort to this because you didn't think about me, right? You, you know, you were so concerned with having a child on your own that you left me no other option. Right? The only way I could possibly get myself into this covenantal story was perhaps by trying to adopt this baby. But if you would only ask for both of us, then, you know, I could have had a child along with you. Um, and then you think, if you remember, later on when Yitzhak's wife Rizka is unable to have children, right, he does exactly that, right? He prays for Rizka and then she conceives, right? So there is a sense that, um, that had Abraham prayed for Sarai, right, perhaps she also could have had a child. But instead, he was kind of, right, Sarai says, and you were focused on yourself, you were only talking about yourself, and therefore my wrong is upon you, right? You wronged me. And the reason why she calls God's judgment down upon him is that basically what she's saying is, this is really it. the problem with your original conversation with God, right? And so she's not kind of appealing to God kind of just as, you know, as a, as a verbal flourish. But what she's saying is, really, you know, when you spoke to God, you should have been talking about me as well. And therefore, I am going to prove. I am complaining about you to God. Yeah? I think there is some complaints about God being judgmental. Yeah. Because there's some complaints about God here, too. And God is saying, you know, it's just... 
she's blaming the other person as a way to hide writing of them, that the case easily could have released both of them. But, you know, not just the one who asked. And what are they doing in jail to start with if the team didn't put them there? Right? Shouldn't the team also be responsible for the original imprisonment? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point, right? Um, there is a sense that maybe it also is kind of a subtle complaint, but, you know, a complaint against that also. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. Huh? Someone you know, both have power over her and be angry at her, do whatever you want her. There's something, and I think it's worth noticing because next week when we look at the the, the second story of of, of Hagar Israel, the one that actually is the the story on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, Avraham's whole attitude changes. Right, once once he knows Yishmael, he no longer sort of speaks in this kind of callous way about them. Um, but over here, he doesn't actually seem particularly interested in Hagar or what might happen to her, right? And he seems more than willing to let, let Sarai do whatever she wants Hagar, even, even if he could, you know, in theory, result in, in the losing of the baby. It seems as if Avon kind of is willing to sort of try to have a child in this way, but he doesn't seem particularly invested in the child until the child is born. Once the child is born, everything changes for Avon, but at this point, he doesn't seem to be so concerned about it. Um, and I think it's an interesting suggestion about what changes for Sarai, right? You're saying that maybe Sarai sees something about Hagar that makes her realize that Hagar's child can't be the covenantal child, which is kind of a little bit similar to what Diane was suggesting earlier, right? The very fact that Hagar is Egyptian maybe must mean that. Um, I think that's one reading of it. And again, I think it's kind of almost a more generous reading, right? The less generous reading is that Sarai is not interested in Hagar's child being the covenantal child. So that guy is only interested in her child in the covenantal child, and to the extent that Hagar's child could have been her child, right? You know, had it been the case that Hagar was willing to just kind of, you know, give up the baby to Sarai's care, right? Then Sarai would have been very interested in advocating for, you know, for that child. Once Hagar begins to disrespect her, though, then you get the sense that um, Sarai realizes that Hagar is not going to sort of gracefully just head with the team and kind of hand the baby over, at which point Sarai says, I don't. I'm not interested in, in Hagar's child being covenant child. I was only interested in the child to be covenant child. She's getting him. Yeah. 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 Y
Yeah. 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 I think it's, yeah, yeah. I would say, I think it's kind of one sort of very straightforward reading of the story is that to the extent that Sarai thought that Hagar was going to drop out of the picture, it seemed like a really good plan for Sarai. The moment Sarai realizes that Hagar is actually a person with her own plans and her own, uh, you know, personhood within the story, then Sarai actually kind of doesn't want to feel anymore, right? I think that's one, one way to read it, right? It's because when Hagar has asserts herself, Sarai says, wait, hold on, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And so, um, and the question is, when she mistreats Hagar in verse 6, right, is the goal to just sort of put Hagar in her place, right, sort of restore Sarai's own dignity, or does she really hope that Hagar is going to run away? Maybe, from Sarai's perspective, right, if she can make things unpleasant enough for Hagar that Hagar will leave, maybe that's what Sarai's hoping for, right? Because she kind of wants to, she's not going to sort of abort the baby, but she might want to abort the plant, right, by having the, you know, the woman away. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Is that Hagar's gotten pregnant? Hagar's. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the totally the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Once that happens, then right. he's not interested in it. Ah, so that's the whole idea, and I would support your, your reading also. Um, okay, if you, if you uh, put that first sheet over to, to page, uh, to verse number five, right? So, uh, Sarna again says, not only was it not surprising that Sarai gave, uh, you know, gave a maid to Avram to try to have a child, and was it, not, it also wasn't surprising that the maid began to, uh, Disrespect her, but also the treatment of Sarai also seems to be not unusual. Like Sarai mistreating Hagar, we're told the laws of Ornan we prescribe that the insolent concubine has her mouth scoured with one quart of salt, while Hammurabi prescribes that she be reduced to slave status and again dare to slave much. That seems the sense that, you know, the sense of the, the concubine kind of becoming pregnant and asserting herself uh, was, was often happened, and then also there were these laws to kind of try to put her, put her back in her place. Um, Sarnia goes on to say, the Hebrew verb used here implies that Sarai subjected Hagar to physical and psychological abuse. It carries with it the nuance of critical judgment of her actions. Um, and then he cites Ramban, which actually put in the, the next verse of the next verse of this, verse number six. Ramban actually is uh, very harshly critical of Sarai's treatment of, of Hagar. Like you look in verse number six, Ramban says, Sarai abused Hagar and Hagar ran away. Our mother Sarah sins by uh, by abusing Hagar in this way. The gun Abraham became collaborative, and also Abraham sinned by allowing Sarah to do this. The Shema Hashem Elam Ya, and God 
heard Sarai's affliction, Vinatan Laben she hetera Adam, and God, as a result, gave Hagar a child who was going to be this wild man, Laanot Zera Abraham Vichara the Chomi Nehaimoy. To, uh, to, you know, basically, God will give Hagar a child who, in the end, will afflict the children of Abraham and Sarah. Right? So, Ramon sees this as really being kind of a, a terrible moment, right? Terrible behavior, both on Sarah's part and also on Abraham's part, with kind of serious historical ramifications, according to Ramon. So it does not seem to me from Sarah that he was saying you would get rid of the concubine, but you would try to sort of put her back into her place of death, right? And so it's not like... So I think the goal would be not necessarily to get rid of, right? In theory, right, you want her to still have the baby, her, right? but you want her to put her back in place. And that gets to the question of, you know, what was the what was Sarai's goal in abusing Hagar? She just really angry at her and kind of wants to demonstrate that. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that she wants to keep Hagar part of the household, but she wants Hagar to sort of know her place, and so she abuses her as a way of asserting her power over her, so that, you know, Hagar will stop disrespecting her. Right, that's another possibility. And the third possibility she really is hoping that Hagar will be is because she realizes that her plan is not working out the way she thought, and most conveniently for her, you know, it would be great if this woman and her baby would, you know, which, you know, in the end is a couple of chapters later is what Sarah brings about. So over here, it's not clear what, what Sarah's goals are. In any case, Hagar runs away. We're told in verse 7, an angel of God finds Hagar by a spring of water in the desert. And we're told in verse 8, Vayomar, the angel says, Hagar, she Hagar, me, given to Sarai. Amy, Zabat, the Anate. Where are you, uh, where have you come from and where are you going? Right? So, interestingly, right, the angel addresses Hagar as Shichat Sarai, right? Hagar, me, servant of Sarai, right? You know, the angel, if Abraham is not willing to put Hagar in her place, right, the angel, the angel addresses her as me, servant of Sarai. And this again is the whole question of, you know, what, what actually really is Hagar's status, right? It seems that in, in, um, in verse 3, Sarai had given, given Hagar as his wife. But in verse 6, Avram refers to Hagar as Kinechi Kotechia. Right? She's your maid servant, she's at your mercy, right? She's in her hands. And here the, the angel also calls her Chukhat Sarai. So it seems as if, certainly from Avram's perspective and from the angel's perspective, she's not really a wife, she's really uh, just Sarai's maid. And um, an angel asks her this question, right? This question of where, where, where have you come from and where are you going? Um, and uh, and Sarai answers, she says, I'm running away from my mistress, from my mistress, um, Sarai. Which is interesting, first of all, in terms of, right, she did not think that Sarai is, in fact, a mistress. Also, you'll notice she's only answering half the question, right? She's not saying where she's going to, she's just saying where she's coming from. Probably because she has no idea where she's going to, right? It's not that she's run away into the desert with a plan of what she's doing next, right? She's run away because she can't bear to be where she is anymore. Um, so interesting is this, this happens actually quite often in the Bible that either God or an angel will ask a question, right? And usually the point of the question is not to get information, right? It's not that the angel doesn't know where Sarai is coming from, right? It's not the, the point. Um, it's 
the people kind of want to think about what their plan is. So it's a little bit similar to, um, if you remember, after uh, Adam and Chava eat from the tree, right? And God says, yes, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where, uh, where they are. Or when Cain kills Hebel and God says to Cain, where's your brother Hebel? Again, it's not because God doesn't know. It's kind of usually a chance for the, for the human being to sort of think about what they've done and kind of, you know, reflect on it in some manner. So I think that something similar is going on over here. The angel isn't acting as a point of information. The angel kind of wants to point out to Hagar that she doesn't have a plan. Right? Where are you going? Right? Where have you come from and where are you going? What, 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 what is your, what's your plan over here, pregnant woman in the middle of the desert? Right? What, what do you think is going to happen? And she doesn't have a plan. Right? So she just says, I'm running away. In verse 9, we're told, Hashem, the angel of God says to her, Return to your mistress and continue to be abused by her. Not surprisingly, Hagar does not say, okay, right? She's not, she's not. So the angel has to come up with another offer, right? So in verse 10, the angel starts speaking again and says, The angel of God says to him again, I will um, greatly multiply your descendants. You won't even be able to count them. There will be so many of them. Right? Now this already sounds kind of covenantal. It reminds us of the promises that Abraham has given. But it turns out this is not enough for Hagar. She still doesn't respond. And so the angel in verse 11 begins again. Right? The angel of God says to her, um, when this happens in Tanakh, right? If you have the same speaker speaking without any interruption, but uh, they're introduced again, right? In, in verses 9, 10, and 11, they all start with, the angel I think the implication normally is that the person, or the angel in this case, is kind of waiting for a response that doesn't come, and then so it starts again, right? So it's almost like there's a kind of an implied pause, right? Go back to the Shirai. There's kind of a pause, right? Waiting for Hadar to answer. Hadar does not like this option that the angel's given her, so she's silent. The angel starts up again in verse 10 and says, okay, fine, I'll give you all these descendants. There's a pause, right? Well, that's good enough. Hadar still doesn't respond. Um, and so in verse 11, the angel speaks again and says, you, you, know, you are pregnant and you will... You will um, you will give birth to a child. The Karat Shemo Yishmael, you will name this child Yishmael Kishama Hashem because God has heard your, your suffering. Now, interestingly, this, this language of Hinachara, right, to hold you are with child, I would say the, the shot level, right, the plain meaning of it is, you know, you are now pregnant, right, and, um, and uh, you'll give birth to a, a, a little baby boy, and this will, you know, you'll call the baby Shmael, so God is very suffering. Um, there is kind of a Midrashic tradition, though, that Hinachara means that Hagar um, had actually miscarried that first baby as a result of Sarai's abuse, but what the angel telling her is that you will go back and conceive again, which kind of makes the story even a little bit darker, I think, just if you read it that way. Um, anyway, you'll have this child, um, you'll call this child Yishmael because God has heard your suffering, your child will be a wild man. Your child's hand will be in everything, and everyone else's hands will be in everything. He will sort of dwell amongst all of his kingdoms. Um, and this final promise seems somehow more compelling to Adam. Right now in verse 13, she finally, she finally speaks, right? Um, and in verse 13, she speaks and she, she uh, was told, She um, called, the, called the name of, of God who speaks to her. She said, You are the God who speaks. Because she says, 
um, have I not seen after speech? Um, okay, so a couple of things I think are, are worth noticing over here. One is her language of Hagam Halum Ma'ishiachari really is understood in, in different ways, but Rashi's reading of it is that Hagar was used to seeing angels in Abraham's household, right? And now what she's saying when she says Hagam Halum Ma'ishiachari now have I seen, after seeing, what she's saying is, have I seen an angel on my own after having seen angels in, in Abraham's household, right? Which is, uh, which is one reason of it. Um, there's uh, another reading that I like a lot of left, the Adria Gaon, who says uh, that really what Hagar is saying is, Now I have seen your mercy, God, after I saw my own affliction in Abraham's household, right? I saw the abuse beforehand, and now I'm, I'm seeing your mercy, right? In each case, there's a sense of sort of seeing after seeing, and the question is, what is it that she saw previously, and what is she seeing now? According to Rashi, she saw angel previously, and now she sees more angels, but she sees this angel now. And according to uh, Rashad, she saw sort of pain and suffering before, and now, now she sees mercy. Um, she sees God's mercy. So, but I think if, if we think back to one moment, right, what is it about this third promise that the angel makes her that, uh, that moves her, right? Just being told, go back and suffer, is not compelling for her, right? And even being told, you'll have many descendants, isn't compelling for her. But somehow this last, this last promise seems to kind of resonate with her, right? Um, you'll have a child, you'll call him Ishmael because God has heard your suffering. Your child will be sort of wild, right? Hands will be in everything, he'll dwell with his, with his brethren. Yeah, I think I think it's a good question, right? It's not so obvious exactly what about this is better than, you know, the promise before. You know, you'll have so many descendants they won't be able to keep up with. Um I would think a couple of things might be different. One is I think there's something compelling for her about knowing that God has heard the suffering, right? Being told, right, you'll call the child Ishmael, right, because God is sure you're suffering. I think that is compelling for her, right? To be told that you, you know, you're, you're not just kind of this big player in Abraham and Sarai's household who doesn't really have any personhood, right? God has heard you and your suffering, and your child will be named for that, right? For the fact that God has heard you and your suffering. I think also my sense is that God probably feels very kind of alone and vulnerable, and being told that her child will be this kind of wild, strong person might be. Compelling, right? If, you know, if you feel like you don't have anyone to look out for you and you're told your son will be a strong person, that might be compelling. And this image of him sort of living with, you know, with, you know, with, with his brethren, right? Sort of being a part of something larger, right? For a person who feels very alone, I would imagine that could also be, you know, be, be, be compelling for her. Right, there's, there's, there's something about what the angel promises and now kind of moves her to speak, and we'll see, we'll kind of move her to go back, right? She, she's willing to kind of go back to have a mature household. Yeah? He's not living with his brother. He's living against him. He's living... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of depends on what we mean by extended family, right? It have sometimes means like descendants, you know, your your broader family. And I think that I guess that was the way I was thinking it, that, you know, he'll sort of live kind of with his you know, extended family, you know, live amongst amongst his brothers, his brethren. Um, 
Right, because it's certainly isn't referring to these class, right? Because it doesn't seem to be so with him. It seems like it's, it's some sort of, you know, broader. It's yeah. Name. yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 yeah, but you also have, like, yeah. when, when Yaakov first gets to Shem, right, it's by Hanal Pnei Kol Ha'ir. I think it was a, you know, sort of, like, dwelling kind of, kind of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we should, we should think about where else we see Alpine. I, I was remembering that, you know, when Yaakov gets to Shkhan, he kind of camps out, kind of, you know, near yeah. the city or at the, you know, among the city. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you should only be his own person, according to this. Yeah. He won't be just another one of the brothers. That's what it's Huh, okay. So he'll be sort of distinguished. Ah, because you're seeing it. I guess the question is who are the brothers. Like if the brothers are kind of his own descendants, right, then it's sort of, he'll be kind of, you know, almost like a, what is it called? It's like a hamula, right? You know, the whole like, family plan that's kind of living together. But maybe it means that, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't know if Hagar understands that maybe she will have other children and he will dwell amongst them, like, it's not so clear. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about the fact that the angel means like the same language that Yaakov Mm-hmm. 
Reminding her that she's pregnant is a way of saying like, you actually can't sort of just stay here in the desert without a plan, right? You need you need to you know you need to take care of the baby, and the way to do that is to go back. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm
we're told over here that Abraham calls the baby Ishmael. Right? Now, we know that the reason why the baby's name is Ishmael, according to the angels, right, Hagar will call, will call the baby Ishmael, because God has heard Hagar's suffering, right? So when we hear the name Ishmael, we know it's all about God specifically noticing Hagar's suffering and responding to it. But when Abraham calls the baby Ishmael, right, it might be that Hagar came back and told him this whole story about what happened to her, and that's why Abraham calls him that. But it comes to be that Abraham has no idea that this has happened. And Abraham calls the baby Ishmael because Abraham says, God, you have heard me, right? I asked you for a baby, and now I have one. And so Ishmael, from Abraham's perspective, could be all about God hearing Abraham's own prayers and kind of granting Abraham a child. And I think there's something very interesting about that. I just sense that there's a whole very important story that's happened that it could be that, you know, Abraham and I have, have no sense of it at all, right? They still think of Hadar as, you know, kind of this ancillary figure who, you know, you know, will, you know, kind of exist to sort of provide at least one of them with a child, if not both of them. Um, and Hadar, though, on her own now has a sense of herself as actually a person with her own independent connection to God and sort of has been given these, these promises that have kind of come really just to her. Um, and I think the name is very interesting, like the fact that, you know, the angel says, you'll call him Ishmael, and in the verses it's Abraham calling the baby Ishmael. It's kind of interesting in terms of, uh, in terms of who, you know, what, what the meaning, what the meaning of the name is for each of them. Now, something else that's worth noticing is that Sarai does not name the baby, right? The Sarai does not name the baby. Right? Either Hagar kind of calls him Ishmael and Abraham does as well, or Abraham means Ishmael. But at no point does the Sarai name the baby. And that's one of the ways that we know that Sarai has kind of watched her hands of this child, right? Her whole kind of glorious plan for herself where Hagar would give birth on her knees and she would raise the baby, that's not happening at all, right? And we know that because not just because she's abused Hagar and Hagar's run away, but also because she hasn't named the child. Um, later on, when Rachel and Leah give their you know, each Rachel gives her maidservant Yilhah to Yaakov, and then Leah gives her maidservant Yilhah to, to Yaakov. Right, when, when those women give birth, right, who, who names the baby? Right, so Rachel and Leah do, right? Right, remember Rachel, um, right, Rachel is very excited when she names those children. Actually, we can, uh, we can look quickly at the, let's look quickly at that. Chapter 30 in Rishi. Right, it's on page 59 in the Deep Death um, chapter 30. So if you look at verse 1, right, we're told, Rachel realizes that she has not had any children for Yaakov. She gets very jealous of her sister. She says to Yaakov, Give me children, otherwise I'll die. Yaakov gets angry at Rachel, who says, Look, uh, am I in God's place that I, uh, that, you know, God is the one who prevented you from having a child, right? This, this encounter actually reminds me a little bit of Sarai and Abraham, right? Where Sarai says, my wrong is upon you, and Abraham basically says, take care of it on your own, right? And here again, right? Rachel says, give me children, otherwise I'll die, and Yaakov says, this isn't my problem, right? You know, you, you deal with this on your own. Um, so then Rafael says, Here's my nature and Yilhah come to her. She will give birth on my knees. Right? That's probably where, where above and takes the language from. Right? She'll give birth on my knees. Um, right? And I will be built up through Yilhah. Right? This sounds like a very familiar plan to us, having read the story of Hadar and Sarai. But as opposed to the Hadar and Sarai story, which quickly kind of devolved into a, devolved into a debacle here, 
seems to work out, right? We're told, uh, she gives her her maidservant Shifra as a wife, then Yohad conceives and gives birth to a child. But Tomorrow says, God has judged me and listened to my voice and has given me the son of King Parashimodan, and so she names him Dan. Um, we told then, Right? I have, I have uh, struggled, you know, this fierce contest with my sister and I have prevailed, and she calls this baby Nathan. Then Leah realizes that she hasn't, that she's not having children. She takes her maidservant in verse 9, she gives her to Yaakov. Um, and here we're not even... We're not even told about Zilpah conceiving, right? In verse 10, we're told Zilpah gives birth, right? It happens so quickly. Zilpah gives birth already in verse 10. And Leah says, Badad, right? You know, good fortune has come to me because this baby has been born, but she caught him, oh God, she named him God. And then uh, Zilpah gives birth to a second child, and Leah in verse 13 names the second child as well. She says, right? Um, what fortune, all the women will say, I'm so fortunate that I've now had this other child, and she names the baby Asher. Right, so there you have kind of a similar sort of story, right? You know, one woman who actually can't have children at all, the other woman who had four sons but now has sort of stopped for the time being having sons. Each one of them gives their maid servant to their husband. Um, but instead of the high drama of our chapter, right, it seems almost banal, right? They, you know, they have children, the, 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 uh, the wives are thrilled, right? Each one is very, very happy when these babies are born. They name them and it seems that they're kind of claiming them, right? Um, in a way that uh, we get a sense of, of what Sarai had hoped would happen, right? She was hoping for this sort of story, um, but it clearly does not work out that way, right? It doesn't work out that way, partly because Hagar kind of asserts herself, right, in a way that makes Sarai's plan not work out, um, and also because it seems like Sarai wants something more out of this, right? With Sarai kind of, right, it seems that what Rachel and Leah want out of these children is not kind of necessarily a role in the covenant. It seems like they they just want a child, right? Or at least they want to score points against each other in the scheme of having children with Yaakov. Um, whereas Sarah seems to want something more, and, and it, it doesn't work out for her, right? What it is that she wants is not, she's not going to get it by, by giving Hagar to, to, um, to Abraham. And so things kind of fall apart for her in a, in, in a, in a more dramatic fashion. Um, and I think that moment where Abraham names the baby is kind of the moment where that's kind of the final sort of falling apart of Sarai's plan, right? That's when we know that she has no connection to the baby. Her plan to sort of raise the baby and be built up to Hagar has kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, and it sort of sets the, sets the stage for the, the next major story of, of, of Hagar and Mishael, which is the one that we will ask that we'll see next week. Uh, what do you think? Mm-hmm. 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 Perhaps there was some kind of like lesson of like how not to do this. Oh, really? That could be. I think it might also be the case that like Lachan and Leah's story was the standard story, right? This is kind of the way things normally work. And Sarai's story was kind of the outlier story. 
Um, one of the reasons I think it's really useful to look at chapter 30 is that otherwise when we look back at, at our chapter, we think, well, what's the right thinking? Like, of course this is going to be a disaster, right? You can't just kind of, you know, insert another woman into your marriage and assume it will all work out fine. But then you read chapter 30 and you realize, well, actually, it seems like that was kind of done. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't seem as if it was necessarily going to sort of play out that way. Um, it could be maybe also the echo, you know, made it more clear kind of to where the primary exceptions were, or maybe the things were already so messed up between us and my apathy. Edition of the Alaska Fox. I don't think you can do so much to the slide. Right. It's good. It's good. Anyway, okay, let's stop here. I think it's 12.45. Thank you so much. Thank you.